hello, hello, hello once again. My name is Jeff Watson. I am your gracious and grateful host of the Inspired Minds podcast. I love doing these intros, getting dumber and dumber. Um, thanks to my friend Michael Lee Simpson, the producer of said show, for getting me. God, he's getting me so many people to talk to. It's getting interesting. Um, and apparently we're in the top 5% of like new podcasts or po- I don't know how any of this works, but I'm very happy with, uh, with what I'm doing. This is, this is so much fun. I get to talk to so many people. It's amazing. As my friend, Michael told me that we are increasing, obviously, which is good. And that we are now currently being heard in more countries, which is very strange to me. And one of them was Ethiopia. Ethiopia apparently is listening to the sound of my voice. My God. I'm sure it's just probably one person and maybe they just decided, oh, not Joe Rogan. Who is this weirdo? Nevertheless, because of that, if you've been listening carefully, you will note that I am occasionally doing something called the International High Five Section, the bit. And that is a place where I find a particular country, call them out and describe a few things about how awesome they are. That's why the high five section. Although we always start the national anthem, and I found this really great version of it. I have no idea who they call the Ethiopians, and it's like a funk version. Here we go. Comes in. There we go. At any rate... Ethiopia, let's talk about some surprising facts about you guys. Turns out that you have 13 months in the calendar year, 13 months, because apparently you take some days, I don't really quote-unquote days, and you scooch them over. Also, interesting fact, that the Ethiopians have their own time clock, they run on their own time system. They say that the first hour is sunrise, and the last hour, last 12th hour, is when when the sun goes down. That's brilliant. I would like to do that. That'd be incredible if we could pull that off here. Um, so many other things with this country. I'm so excited. First cup of coffee. Hail Ethiopia. Hail Ethiopia. I guess the rumor story goes apparently that like some goat herder was, uh, he was noticing that a sheep, like this particular bush, and he decided to take some of the fruits off and nibble himself. And then he was like, on, 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 working, working, working. I don't think that's necessarily true. But, nevertheless, pretty incredible. And uh, also, Ethiopians, best vegetarian food. I've had it a few times in my life, and my goodness. Okay, Ethiopia. A little last of this. Oh, that's fantastic. So, who do we have next on the hit parade? That would be a guy named Nick Light. Nick Light is one of the greatest human beings I've ever met in my life. He is the Senior Vice President, Artist Development at RCA Records. And he was, uh, he's a music industry legend. And he's just one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. He and I used to work at Warner Brothers Records. And he is a, uh, he was a comic for a long time, still does stand up. Friends with Polly Shore and friends with this and that. And he's just a legitimate comic. Also did a lot of road touring with bands. Um, and he understands so much about the world of art and music, and he's just a hell of a great guy. So I thought, I'm going to throw you on. So, um, oh, and he's also a volunteer firefighter. Like, come on, like, guy of the year. That's what I got. Nick Light coming up. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did making it. Go Ethiopia. Ladies and gentlemen, the dazzled throng that I like to say, please intrude, uh, please welcome my extremely dear friend, Mr. Nick Light, who is a senior vice president over at RCA Records and just a all around good human being. Say hello, Nick Light. Hello. Mostly lies you've just told, but you know. Oh, you know. I'll take it. I'll take it. I do what I can. Um, so the first thing, so first of all, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the uh, listening audience, I've known Nick for a long, long, I was thinking about it, Nick, probably 20 years that I've known you. At least 20 years, because I started at, at Warner Brothers at 99. 
That's right. And I got there in 2002. So yes, uh, Nick and I worked together in the music business. I was at Warner Brothers Records and he was at Warner Brothers Records. And Nick was like my favorite person in the building because Nick took no shit from anybody. And he had the heart of a lion and far and away one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. Funnier than I am. So it's almost like this. Basically, this episode is going to be like two diamondback silver, like, like, like silver, uh, what is it? Silverback. Silverback gorillas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I don't like them. No, I do. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm on millennial time, so I don't have to bait, you know. That's so. right. Okay. So here comes the first question that I always ask. It's a standard question, and it's simply this Nick. What was the first thing that inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a song, a movie, a person? Go. Oddly enough, the first thing that inspired me was we lived down the street from a farm. And uh, the house caught on fire. And I remember seeing, you know, there were six fire trucks and firemen running everywhere. And that, to me, was the greatest thing I had ever seen. And... uh that has led me through my quest to be a fireman. It's led me to to pursue that. And, I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be a part of it till I was almost 50. And then uh, I had to bow out of that world. But, yeah, that was one of the most memorable moments of being a kid. What an impact. Yeah. It, it truly was just one of those. Holy shit. It was one of those moments that just rocked my world. So no. that's uh, that, that, that's where my love and quest for the fire department comes from. And, and, and it has always been with me. I mean, I, I, I got on the department as a kid in high school. And when I was 40, I got on the department out here in California as a reserve firefighter, amongst many other oddities that I could add to my list. But that was one of them. Yeah. You know, I got to be honest with you. The, one of the things that really endeared me to you um, was not only the way that you could scream at people and still make me laugh. Quite a talent. Yeah, I, I, I was a lot angrier in my youth. I, I, I you know, listen. I, 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 my, my older brother is a rock star, and growing up underneath, being his little brother, you're, you're always fighting for your own space and your own place in the world. Yeah. Um, right. And back then, uh, I thought I had to scream and yell and fight harder than the next guy. Uh, you know, now, now that I'm a lot older, I, I, I've grown up and realized I don't need to do that anymore. Who was your brother? I don't know this. Uh, my brother is Rob Light, one of the owners of CAA. Right. I didn't know that. That's right. Yes. Yes, indeed. So it's interesting, though, with the fire thing. Um, and I, I just love asking this question because, you know, it's it obviously is <laughs> the spark. <laughs> the there you go. Hey, there we go. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen. But it, it's interesting that that you know, kind of led you to that because I know the job that you have had and currently have. I won't get into that now, but it's putting out fires. I'm sure you've heard that a million times. Oh, yes. You know. In my role now at the record company, it's always been my role at the record company. Uh, I, I have been putting out fires that, um, you know, other people get themselves into, and it usually comes to me to put it out. Um, it's just just my nature, I guess, you know. Uh, I, I've been very lucky, and I've made a career out of it. You know, some people ask, how do you describe what you do? Uh, I'm basically, I'm, I'm, I'm Ray Donovan without uh, moving any of the bodies. I'm not I'll admit to. So. <laughs> that makes perfect sense, you know, because when you and I were working together, um, and, and this is, I kind of wanted to have this conversation too for the audience to understand a little bit about what we, at least I did, and what you continue to do and how we all work together. But for the, uh, for the uninitiated, I would, in my job, I was digital marketing and a lot of that had to do with setting up events. And I'd say, oh, we're going to be doing this giant thing on the top of the Rockefeller Center with uh, My Chemical Romance and this is going to happen. And then I would talk to Nick or Tiffany uh, Hauger or any of those people, and then they would help set it up. Yeah. Among a million other things. So in, in my role at the record company, yeah, at Warner Brothers, more artist development and touring. So we would literally get any idea you'd come up with. I mean, uh, we did one with the Red Hot Chili Peppers when we put them on Ellis Island, and there was an interesting little note with that. You couldn't get anything to Ellis Island post-9-11 without uh, – taking a very specific boat. Huh. Well, the boat's hull needed to be secured by uh, a Navy SEAL diver. So Nick, find a Navy SEAL diver to get the boat cleared so we can bring everybody over to Ellis Island, which I found, but that job built everything. We would come up with 
I mean, any idea you can come up with, we'd figure out a way to get through city permits, close down a street, move a helicopter, do whatever needed to be done. We would build it and we would do it. So first question is pretty obvious here, if you ask me. How the hell do you find a Navy SEAL? Uh, the, the funny thing is, with the title I have, as bizarre as this sounds, just calling with, hey, this is Nick Light calling uh, on the SVP of Artist Development over at Sony Music, the, the call tends to go through. Huh. I don't know why. Uh, I called Annapolis. Annapolis referred me to the Navy out in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn dive master there referred me to the seal who could do it. And we arranged the time and he dove on the circle line ships that run in Manhattan and take people to Ellis Island. God, I, I, I find in this industry, if you've got enough nerve, you can get anything done. And, yeah. and, and a lot of people panic like, <clears throat> Oh, I can't call the Navy. Well, you're on the telephone. Nobody knows who you are. You could be anybody. Yeah. So as long as you've got the nerves and, and the brass stones to go do it, all like, the worst you can do is say no and then call back under a different name. Yeah. You know. uh, so here's, a, here's, here's the other question. This is kind of a corollary. How on earth did you shut down Times Square for Bon Jovi? How did that work? Okay, so at the time, this was right after the Slippery When Wet tour happened. Yeah. That tour just ended. It was the These Days tour. I was at Polygram Records. And... We were coming up with promotions to do, and somebody came up with the idea of closing down Times Square, which now seems as common as anything for Dick Clark and New Year's. But back then, this was 1994-ish. Mm. Yep. Nobody ever closed Times Square. Uh, so I was calling to get permits and all that. I was getting shut down everywhere I turned. And then some kind lady, and I forget which office it was in, said, you know, if you film this, getting film permits is easier than getting any other permit. So then it switched to, I'm recording this concert, right. which we were doing it on video. And uh, the city opened wide open to let me do whatever I wanted. Um, they gave us access to close Times square. And this is, if you remember, and you look at old pictures, there was an old police station in the center of Times square. And we closed that area all the way up to, geez, like 49th street. Uh, it took us a few days to build the stage. We did it out there. It was a, a truly spectacular event. Yeah, I would it hope was, so. It was a, it was a, and I remember, and I'm not going to say who, who the marketing person was. I was in the middle of building it. We had a new head of marketing who clearly did not feel my presence at the record label. <laughs> they, they were not happy with me being there. And, uh, I'm in the middle of load in and I get called back into the office. And she's like, you know, I want you to tell me what you're feeling. Like what I'm feeling right now, I'm feeling I have 300 cops in the street. I got 800 union state chance. I don't think I should be here right now. <laughs> I have to go. And uh, it was a, not the best falling out to your new boss, but <laughs> I didn't mind. I mean, I was I was uh, to me, I was making history and working with a band that I love. And, uh, and thankfully, I've been working with for years, years and years afterwards. So sure. Sure. And the thing, I think you're right, too. You know, if you have enough gumption, oomph, whatever you want to call it, and if you just kind of bluster your way through it and say, this is what I am doing, this is the truth, this is my vision, you can generally kind of pull things off. But the question really is now, where the hell did you learn that? Uh, I realized early on, you know, in high school, I wanted to be a, a stand-up comic. I wanted to be a performer, but I don't have talent. <laughs> I got that. Um, I got a brass set of nuts. Uh, and, and again, you know, I, I was lucky. I had an older brother who was very powerful, who was a very important influence to me. And, and I want to be like my brother. I mean, uh, you know, 90% of the stuff you saw at Warner Brothers, I had no fucking clue what I was doing. But nobody else knew that. <laughs> so the answer I would give is somebody would give me something. Oh, you know what? Let me just finish this call. I need five minutes. I'll get right back to you. I was stalling for the five minutes. And in that five, I'd come up with an answer. And then I'd call them back. There you go. There you go. And I would imagine, by the way, because you do have talent as a comic among your hilarious. And I would imagine that that fast thinking has either influenced your comedy brain or vice versa. Um, 
doing stand up to me it's 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 magical i mean I, as you know you you you've gone up a few times yeah. so you understand there is something that just moves your soul when you can get up and tell jokes you've written and have control of an audience like that that to me is the greatest feeling in the world and those who get to do it as their career oh is that a gift but most comics are troubled souls and sure i'm not that troubled i grew up like the brady bunch so i i i I didn't have a troubled life, so right. my material's kind of weak. I will tell you this. I will tell you this story really quickly about uh, comics. Uh, very few people know the story as well, but when I was a young publicist, way pre Warner Brothers, um, one of the clients was Judy Tenuta, the mm-hmm. you know uh, accordion uh, woman lady, and she. I, I was supposed to take her to a radio event, some radio show thing. She did a couple of a uh, couple of lines, did some accordion stuff. I drove her back, and the whole time back, she's like, "Was I funny? Was I funny? Oh, Was I funny?" Right. Wow. The most insecure. They're all like that. I yeah. mean, you know, you know, I took Paulie Shore out on the road, and, sure. and Paulie was the same way. You know, I, I, I think most comics are. That's their outlet. That that's the way to release the pain they feel and the suffering they've got inside. So, I, I you know, I don't know if I'll ever be happy. Yeah. Yeah, it brings some great material, though. So. It does. I mean, all art, really, when you think about it, great art. I'm talking like, you know, Neil Young, or I'm talking about uh, uh, you know, any fantastic painting, whatever that looks like. Generally speaking, it comes from at least some point of pain. You know that. Yeah, yeah without question. Yeah, which is why a lot of these fly-by-night, you know, kids and bands and all that that have nothing to say, they flame out. Well, yeah, that that I think we're we're going through through a music period that, that cannot sustain itself. So what do you mean by that? Keep going with that. Um, uh, you know, I look at it now, the time we were together at Warner brothers, we built talent from zero. Yeah. And a perfect example of that is Michael Buble, who was a lounge singer on a cruise ship and came to us. And we, we built his career from zero to playing stadiums in about four or five years. But there was the commitment to that time. There was the commitment to build his band, the commitment to put him out on the road, and the the commitment to develop that talent. In today's world, everything is TikTok-based. Everything is based on a metric of how many views do you get. Um, I I, I don't know if that's sustainable. So... I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. Now I have every record. I've got every bootleg. And if the format changes from streaming, whatever, I will buy them all over again. The, in today's world with TikToks and that short term attention span, I don't think anybody's buying catalog. I don't think anybody's going to say next summer while they're going out to the lake, Oh man, grab the Megan, the stallion record. Nope. So uh, I think music today is, is very different. I am hoping and praying, and this will be the one bonus that comes from COVID, that during COVID, uh, a buddy of mine over at, at Fender said they sold more guitars than they've ever sold. I am hoping in the four or five years coming post-COVID that the rock band comes back, that real players come back, that real songwriters come back, and the band comes back. Right, but how are they going to promote themselves on these mediums that value 15 seconds and 20 seconds? Real talent, real talent will will find a way. Yeah. You, you've you been to enough shows that you've walked into at the Roxy or the Troubadour where you've come out, eh, and then you've come out of shows that, wait a second, that, that was a magic moment I just right. experienced. And when that happens, you won't need TikTok, you won't need any of it. That will just spread as word of mouth, and and that movement will grow. Yeah, and you know, I want to sound like 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 Gramps here, um, but and uh, it's, the thing about it for me is just so sad is that you know it's a typical thing. When I was a kid, I had a record player and I had a giant piece of vinyl and it had a cover on it, and I could stare at that cover and I could say, "Wow, David Bowie, that looks weird. I'm never going to understand what he looks like or who he really is." Yeah. And that was amazing. It, it, it created, you know, it created that mysticism. I think you could, you, you could, you could throw yourself into those artists because they were the ciphers. That, that, now, that I think is the downside of the internet. I agree. Um, you know, I have a 15 year old boy that, you know, in an instant, everything is there. There's no real research. It's no, everything is effortless. It's at its fingertip. 
Um, I also notice on his generation that music is third or fourth on the list. Yeah. You know, where for us growing up, you couldn't make a move without bringing your, your, your tapes with you or a boombox. Yeah. Today, uh, you know, their, their iPhones have everything. You, we couldn't have even imagined what an iPhone was. So literally, he can walk around with every song ever created. But I think now video games, Discord, social media all take the place of getting into good music. Um, and I feel bad for him because I can remember the day I bought uh, the Who's Tommy. And I remember coming home and opening it up and sliding the record out and, and yeah. the joy and the ritual of putting it on a record player. He will never know that ever. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, you're right. And uh, to that point, may I uh, trade tit for tat on stories here? This, uh, this is a podcast first, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody knows this one. But my first experience was uh, my dad took me when I was six years old to a library and there was a magician at the library. So it was all dark. And I remember this vividly because the lights went dark and the opening strains to Boston's more than a feeling came on. Now I'm six years old or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I hear this thing. And then when it hits to the close my eyes and it slips through and it kicks in yeah. flash pots go off because it was the seventies in the fucking library. <laughs> and I just, I just realized that. And the magician came out and he did his magician shit and I didn't care, but I had my dad walk up to him and say, what was that song? And he's like, it's called more than a feeling kids. Boston's great. So I made my dad go out and buy the 45. I remember all of this. I remember going home and putting the record on the knee and just like spinning that thing nonstop, fascinated by it. Well, I, you know, when I, when I talk to kids today or I talk to anybody about music, music, listening to music is personal. You do that by yourself. You're listening on headphones. You're listening in the car. It's a personal thing. Going to a show, social. That is live. That is, that is hanging out with your buddies. I, I, you know, and it, it's, I don't know that the kids are connecting on that personal moment with a song. Yeah. I, I see how quickly they they flip through. They flip, flip, flip. They give it thirty seconds and it's done. Yeah, and you know, even little things like driving to the record store, yeah. putting gas in your car to do that. You know, yes. And then you you've got to get a serious investment in that, and that's why you. Well, do that. I, I, I tried to explain to my son what it was like spending an entire Saturday at Tower Records on Sunset, and he looked at me like, "What? What is wrong with you? Why would you go to Tower? Everything's right here." Like you don't get it. You had to touch it. You had to smell it. You had to see the artwork. You had to read the liner notes. You needed oh, all of liner notes. I know. So, given that shift, now how has that affected your job? How how is all of the streaming shit and no one buying records or no one buying T-shirts? Let's say or you know, I, I'm very lucky in my job. I, I still deal with all the touring and the logistics. So even though the attention span is shorter. The albums, you know, records are not selling the way they used to. There is no substitute for live music. None. You yeah. cannot fake it. You cannot put it on the web. I mean, we all saw that during the, the first few months of COVID. Everybody was trying to put up, oh, I'm streaming live from my basement. I'm streaming live here. Going to a concert is social. It's something, it's an experience. Yeah. And, and thankfully, that hasn't changed. Um, you know, there is that excitement of seeing, you know, seeing all a crew of guys getting ready to go in and see their first concert. It's pretty magical. I mean, when I was on tour, I always saved, you know, a handful of front row tickets. And I would always walk up to the last row right about 730 and I'd look for couples and, and, hey, do you want to sit in the front row? And you'd give them an experience of a lifetime. Yeah. That's never going to change. I, 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 don't, I don't think there's ever going to be a replacement for the live, the live concert. So I, I am very lucky that my, my career still rolls forward on that. You can't, you can't replace live. You can't. Well, what do you do about guys who are doing track shows? Oh, yeah, actually, that reminds me. Let's go backwards for a second. You worked with uh, Gerardo, and I'm sure that was a track show. No? Rico Suave. Man. Yeah. Yes, I was Gerardo's that. tour manager at the height of Rico Suave Mania in 1991. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was also on a, on a DAT 
tape, a digital audio tape. Yes. Um, it was a track act. We ended up putting a, a drummer and a percussion player on. But, you know, let's let's be real. It was the people wanted to see Rico Suave. They wanted to see the sex symbol of the 90s. And that's what it was. Yeah. We took a, we took a three and a half minute show and spread it out to 45 minutes and played every Bush Gardens in America, every dance club, every hall we could play. And that took me around the world five times as a kid. It was oh. one of the great experiences of my life. How do you stretch a three-minute song into 45 minutes of a show? Oh, you'd be amazed. <laughs> uh, believe me, the drum solos would get longer and longer. <laughs> of course. So, you know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here's the same song four times in a row. <laughs> oh, please. You'd open Rico Suave, you'd do two or three others, and then we close with Rico Suave. That's the point. You know... <laughs> To be honest with you, this is a great story, actually. When I went to go see Neil Diamond at the 40th anniversary of the Hot August Night thing, and it was at the Greek Theater, he played he played Sweet Caroline not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in his life. Right. But everybody loves it because they just want to sing the... Da, da, da. Of course. <laughs> and, and he's not foolish. Give the fans what they want. No, totally. You know, so... Respected the game. Uh, it, yeah, I, 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 I miss Gerardo. I, I, I talk to him all the time and it's funny. My wife can always tell when I'm on the phone with him because I'm in tears. I, I just, it makes me laugh so hard. I cry. So, yeah. And, and you were TMing, I know for, uh, tour managing. For I was tour managing. Yes. yes uh, I did not know that's what I was being sent there for. Right. So yeah. what had happened, I, I was working for an attorney, Peter Lopez. And, uh, you know, I don't fit in a lawyer's office. Uh, I mean, nobody can see me, but I, if you knew me, you know, I don't fit in a lawyer's office. Yeah. <laughs> and I was sent to, it's like, you got to go to Brownsville, Texas, go see Gerardo. Uh, okay. So huh. I booked the flight, got to Brownsville, Texas. I don't know who Gerardo is. I don't know what Gerardo is. I didn't know what Rico Suave was. I knew nothing. All I knew was the A&R guy was named Chuck Reed. And I get to Brownsville, Texas. I knock on Chuck Reed's door. He's packing his stuff. He said, Nick, always call the hotel first. Don't lose your receipts. He walked out the door. <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was, okay, <laughs> you're a tour manager now. Figure it out. And I did. It was, uh, it was amazing. Truly amazing. Amazing. And you know, it's funny. I've said this before, and I know that you will agree, because as you know, I was on the road before I started working at Warner Brothers as I was a musician. And I basically spent the 90s in a van. Like That was my life, right? So I know what it's like to be, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning and you're hungover and you're upset because there's no fucking Slim Jim there and everyone's drunk in the van and there's disorders, you know, terrible. But I loved it. And I've always said, and I think you're going to agree with this, it's kind of like being a pirate. Yes. Because you're just city to city, you know, plunging or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, raping and pillaging and and stealing and... You know, I try and tell that to new bands now. Getting in the van, it's a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. You will hate it at times, but the second you get out of that van for the last time, you're going to miss every second of being in that van. So right. It's like going to boot camp. Boot camp sucked. (laughs) But, you know, some of your fondest memories in there because you're going through that battle together. That's Exactly, and all my, you know, it's almost like having like Vietnam War veteran friends. I still talk to all the time. Well, it's a shared, it's a shared misery that only you guys understand because you were there. It's funny. I remember I was at Polygram Records, and we had a band uh, called Rusted Root. I remember that they were opening for Page Plant. Okay, and it's about we're about. Four weeks out before the tour starts, and they had two girl singers as co-leads. And one of the girls got appendicitis. Oh. And as we're getting closer and closer to the tour, I kept pushing them in. Is she ready to come back? Is she ready to come back? No, she needs time to heal. Very organic. And I'm like, listen, if she's not back by the second day, she'll be out of the band. And they're all looking at me like, you're out of your mind. She is one of us. She is family. Sure. The tour started, we're into week two, and she shows back up. But she had missed out on that first week of miserable combat. She Uh didn't know any of the inside jokes. She didn't know any of the insider information that you only learn going through that hardship together. 
Exactly. And sadly, she was sent home, you know, a few days later. She couldn't, she couldn't fit in and she couldn't adapt to what they had all gone through. You're so absolutely right about that. I've never really heard it described that way, but you're absolutely correct because you really do. You set up your own boundaries. You set up your own rules because it's a family system at that point. Yeah. And you have your boundaries and you have your jokes and, you know, you're all enmeshed and suddenly the other one comes in and whoa. Yeah. The, the chemistry is off. Everything is off. It's, uh, you know, it, it's funny. I, you know, I have this big lofty title at the record company. I always try and, and, and talk to the artists that I am a road guy at heart. Right. Yeah, I have the big title and blah, 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 and I'm a suit and I sit in, you know, in corporate, but I'm still a road guy. So you can talk to me as a road guy. It, it's very different. If you haven't been out there, if you haven't spent time in the van, yeah. you don't get it. And that's what frustrates me, honestly, with a lot of with a lot of record execs. They all think they get it. You don't get it. Unless you put the time in yeah. and you've done the runs, you, you don't quite understand. Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 used the restroom, let's say, at CBGB's. <laughs> That's enough said right there. <laughs> uh, and you're still here. So. I'm still here, weirdly enough. <laughs> but, you know, you're absolutely right. I think, too, you know, something interesting when you were talking about music, how it's being connecting. I've always said this. I've always, like, since I was 18, it hit me. I, I, I realized that music is my ladder to God. Yeah. It's how I get to it, right? And it has been such an integral part in my life, and that's why I always appreciated you, because I knew that at the end of the day, or even at the beginning of the day, you're incredible, but you were always fighting for what was right. I knew that. And I also knew yeah. that you were a music fan, and you didn't, and you knew your shit. Well, I, 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 you know, it's funny. I kept the charade going for so long, but I started at zero. I, I started at a club in New York City called The Ritz. Yeah, I want to hear about this. Okay, so... I graduated high school like May 5th on a Friday and I got a call to be at the Ritz on Saturday. Huh. I had no clue. No, no idea what I was doing. I was just, uh, you know, a gruff guy on the phone. Yeah. Be at the Ritz 11th street, uh, three o'clock. Yeah. I got there. I'm like, and I realized very quickly, okay, we're going to unload these trucks and we're going to go inside and set up a show. And there were four other new guys with me and it was a crew of 10. So it was a total of 15. Right. And he realized very quickly, carrying all this gear in, the gear's all there, and we're setting the gear up, and there's a bus tray full of ice-cold beer, and everybody's drinking beer. And I'm like, wow, the boss doesn't mind. We're, we're drinking beer. We're setting up a rock show. Oh, <laughs> this is cool. Okay. Um, I kept quiet. I didn't say a word. Then I realized we had to do the show, which didn't start till 1 or 2 in the morning, which meant we weren't getting out till 6 o'clock in the morning. Oh, the other four guys bitched and moaned because they didn't realize they were going to be there till six in the morning. And, you know, they, they got to call their girlfriends and blah, blah. I kept my mouth shut. Well, we finished loading out. The sun is coming up. The, uh, the stage manager, Pat Gillespie, paid the other four guys, paid me and said, great, I'll see you back here at three. Oh. And I stayed until 1989 before it closed and moved uptown. But my time at the Ritz, I learned everything I needed to to launch my career. I can tell you every piece of equipment. I can wire a stage. I can fix an amp. I can tune a guitar. I can set up drums. I can do all that. So when I got into this role in corporate, there wasn't anything you could slip by me mm. because I had learned it the hard way. I mean, literally the hard way as low man on the totem pole, just humping gear and working my way up. And that that, I think, made a huge difference when I got to the corporate side I don't think a lot of the executives understand the roadside. Nah. I could speak to the executive side. And I just found my gap in the middle. And, yeah. uh, and that's where, that's where it all ran from. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's, I mean, I was okay at my job, but the real reality is that I think the reason I stayed around there for, for a minute was just because I could get along with the artists because I'd been in a fucking van. Yeah. But there's a, there's a difference. People don't understand that. Nah. You communicate different than everybody else in the room. I remember, and this is, you know, some of the guys, if anybody from Polygram is listening to this, they'll, <laughs> they'll remember this. So I was new to the Bon Jovi world, and we were doing a show in Red Bank, New Jersey. And it just so happened the, the, the crew broke for dinner. I was a new record exec, first show with Bon Jovi. The, the crew broke for dinner, but all the road cases were still in the hallway. 
Now, the tour manager at the time was a guy named Dave Davis, who I became fast friends with. And he was, you know, he was looking around like, what, what do I do with all these dead cases? I'm like, Dave, I'll help you stack them. Let's just stack them and be done with it. And we go eat. <laughs> so I'm stacking cases. I'm stacking cases. And, you know, for anybody who doesn't think that John Bon Jovi doesn't see and know everything, they are wrong. Huh. John knows everything. Wow. And because of stacking the cases, because there was no question to get dirty, there was no... I was invited to fly in the band's plane while all the other executives weren't allowed near the plane. They became, well, why is Nick Light flying with them? I, I don't know. Maybe get your hands dirty. Maybe stop yeah. playing executives. Stop playing fake, you know, suck up. Exactly. Really get exactly. to know these people. I, I think one of my favorite, by the way, one of my favorite stories, and I, uh, obviously you and I have been in the business. There's so many fucking stories, but one of the best ones for me was, and I'm not going to name names only because I don't remember the name, okay. but uh, Green Day were doing something at the Webster Hall that I'd, I'd put on. I think you were probably there at Tiffany or somebody. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, there was a pre, pre-meet uh, show thing, which by the way, audience members, what usually happens is before the show, there's about like a 10-minute window where the, the uh, label executives can walk in the green room and they can do the handshake, and bands fucking hate it every time. But I watched this one executive guy walk up to, to uh, the singer, Billy, and he goes, that was a great show. And Billy said, we haven't played yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All the time I would see that, and it's just, it's so disheartening. I mean... <laughs> you know, these bands are struggling. They're giving 110%. And then you get some douche nozzle who walks in who thinks he's larger than life. And it's like, really? Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, be part of what's going on. Be present. Be be one of them for a while. As in, that's, the, that's exactly it. Because they all want to be, this is the inherent problem, I noticed. All the executives want to be musicians, and none of the musicians want the executives around them. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I'm only going to say this because I'm one of them. Um, there's a sense of, of power that comes with these jobs. True. Um, you know, uh, listen, you, you knew the time I spent with Michael and, 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 and Josh. Yeah. Groven building their career, and I, I was very tight with them, but I never let it cross the line that I, they're genuinely my friends. They're not my friends. Right. And that's what I think a lot of these guys miss. They're not your friends. You, you know, the, the second the record goes south, somebody's going to take the blame for it. It's probably going to be me because I'm the closest one next to them. Not a good point. So it, it, it take the time to get to know these bands, get to know their ins and outs. I mean, it, it'll, be, it'll be a lot better. It'll be a better relationship. I sure. think it'll be a lot less tense, you know. I agree. I'm going to move on now to another topic, another question. Yeah. I can't wait for this one. So I know you've worked with a lot of traditional divas, right? Christina Aguilera and the Eagles, all of them. Uh, yeah. Seal, I'm, I'm sure I heard Seal's a great guy. But so here's the question. What's the most diva nonsense, the most diva bullshit you've ever had to deal with? And you can name names or not. I leave that up to you. Ooh, most diva moment. I think I um, I remember once I I had to tour manage Paris Hilton when oh. she was a DJ. I don't remember that. I do. Okay, so Paris was very nice, but I realized very quickly you cannot give her anything. I gave her a plane ticket. I turned around. She lost the ticket in 30 seconds. Oh, wow. I get her on the plane. The plane, we're clearly, we're about 30 minutes, 40 minutes in the air. And she tells me she left her phone on the counter and to make the captain turn around and go back and get it. Of course. <laughs> it's not going to happen. No. <laughs> not going to happen. But yeah, as far as diva moments, there, there, there are plenty. I mean, it's, uh, it, as much as I'd like to rag on them and, and believe me, I, I have no problem. Doing that, it's it's almost not fair, and I'll explain why, and you you'll understand this, but hopefully the listening audience understands it. When you're a beginning artist and you're just starting out, you're nobody. Nobody knows you. Your friends are your friends. Your world is your world. Now let's say you have a hit. You're Rico Suave. You've got the number one song on radio, 1991. It's the number one song out there. All of a sudden. You can't even go to the bathroom on your own because you're getting mobbed by people. It's true. So in an instant, the world you have known 
is suddenly taken away from you. So all you have is the people around you. And, you know, you might just want to walk down to the corner, get a slice of pizza and a Diet Coke and relax for a second, but you can't do that. So then it's like, Nick, go get me a pizza. Ah, well, where is it? How come it's not back yet? Well, it has to cook. I can't just whip it out of my ass. You got to give me a minute. So I see how the diva behavior happens. Um, and, and some of it can get pretty ugly and pretty cruel. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some, you know, there's a long standing feud between me and Don Henley. We've never liked each other since day one. No one does, but uh, no one one likes that guy. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. (laughs) I see how it happens. So I'm a little more compassionate than, than, than I should be. I understand. Well, you know, going back actually to the uh, kind of heading back a bit to that storytelling thing, you know, you mentioned Springsteen, right? Yeah. And the thing that, and, you know, I'll just say this too as well, you know, uh, and I'm very open about this. You know this at least, and the audience have even, I've mentioned this a few times. Um, I went through a lot of, ton of trauma about like nine years ago, and it was the suicide of my wife, which I've mentioned. And I had an incredible amount of support from some amazing people. But one of the people that truly, truly was there for me the whole time was Nick Light. And you have been so wonderful to me the whole time. And it, it, I say this to say also that, you know, by sharing my story of my pain, of my experience, you have been able to share yours as well. And we found a connection together. Now, granted, you and I have been connected for a while before that. Yeah. It was that deep and meaningful connection that you have because you're a good human being. You have a good soul, and I want to publicly thank you for what you have done. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, it's always, <laughs> every time I respond to something you post, it's always with a ball-busting attitude, but get a dog. Get a dog. Yes, that's, that's my answer to everything. <laughs> I know. And I'm not wrong on that. I mean, no, I, I, you know, anybody who knows me knows I've had a dog with me always. Yeah. The traumas you went through and the trauma you go through life and the trauma people go through every day, if you just take a minute and sit and actually watch a dog for a while, they well, don't really need much. They're not looking for a fancy car. They don't need a big house. A yeah. tennis ball will do. And they're loyal. They're not going to stab you in the back. They're not going to undercut you. They're not going to cheat on you. They're just, they're there as your buddy. And yeah. not only that, because I, I realized this actually about a month ago, I kind of wrote this down, that God favors dogs. And here's a specific reason, and perhaps all animals, but I'm sticking with dogs, because they cannot think of the future, and they really are pretty fucking limited to thinking of the past, and therefore they are biologically captured to be present. Yes. They're living now. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is now. The whole thing is now. And yeah. that is why I aspire to be more of an animal when it comes to that kind of presence. I told you I'll get your dog. Just give me a shot. I'm working on the space, believe me. I want to, uh, I want to talk about the list. I want you to explain the list. list. Okay. So when I first started in this industry, um, I have a chip on my shoulder that runs a mile wide and probably weighs 14 tons. I didn't go to college. Um, I don't spell well. Uh, I don't write well. I write the way I talk. So if you get an email from me, it's going to sound exactly as I'm speaking to you now. Um, so I got a chip on my shoulder. I always have. And uh, I'm a typical pinhead New Yorker, and I hold a grudge. Right. Um, I'm usually pretty good at letting stuff go, but every once in a while when somebody does me wrong, I don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> and and the not forgetting, some of the times at Warner Brothers, there were a few people that really just seemed to go out of their way to get under my skin. Yeah. If, if they knew if I can pick A or B and I'm going to pick B and that'll piss Nick Light off, I'm picking B. <laughs> and, and as that happened, uh, I found there were, uh, there were a few others in my department who felt the same. And, you know, we, we, we'd have our, our weekly marketing, our weekly department meeting. And I, you know, I made a comment that this person's going on a list. And my number two, Eric was like, what, what list? I'm like, it's my list. He's on a fucking list. And then I actually wrote the list. Yeah. I had a little card. It was probably four inches by nine inches. And I wrote the list. <laughs> and if you crossed us enough that you made that list, you were never coming off. Nope. Ever. 
Nope. Now, I say in my job, I, I, I'm like Ray Donovan. There is nothing I can't pull off. Right. There is not a favor you can ask. There is not magic I couldn't pull out of my ass to deliver for whatever you want to do. And I take a lot of pride in that. But now once you've made the list, you get nothing. Nothing. I mean, it's very cold. And these people go, oh, Nick, can you get me parking at the forum? No. <laughs> you just say no. Uh, no. Oh, Nick, can I, can I get into the uh, Sony Grammy party? Wow. Yeah. It's been a year since I've heard from you last. No. <laughs> no. Um, but yes, there, there is a list. It does exist. And you do not want to be on. I am elated that I was never on. So. Never on. My boss was. I know that. But uh, yes, your boss was on that list, boy. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to wrap this up a little bit here, but I have uh, I got one last question. Unless you have, do you have any questions for me? I've never asked an interviewer that question. I have questions for you. I would like to know what your early touring career was like. Uh, okay. I'd like to know the band you played in. I'd like to know why you stopped. I like I like all this. This is good. Uh, okay, so uh, I started in a band called Ludafisk. Strangely enough, produced by the guy that I just did the last podcast interview with mm-hmm. yesterday. He produced the record. It was a great noise band, like just crazy loud, flaming lips kind of thing, punk rock. It was just a bunch of stuff and loud and obnoxious. And we toured about uh, we toured with Beck for a little few shows in Weezer, but we mostly did van runs across the country. Um, some drugs came into play from some of the band members. So I went out and left another for another band, got signed to uh, Warner Brothers. Actually, we sold no records, but uh, put one record out, had a blast, did that, then ended up in a uh, band called the Streetwalk and Cheetahs in the late 1990s. And that was a Stooges punk rock, like balls to the wall kind of thing. And I finally, just to be honest with you, I, I just hit 30 and I was like, like a lot of people do. What am I doing? Well, that was my next question. When did you know it was time to stop? I'll tell you exactly when I knew it was time to stop. Funny you should ask this question. I was in Philadelphia. I was calling my wife on a payphone. God damn it. Um, And uh, it was raining outside. I just, we were playing, it was a club. We were playing in Philadelphia and it's like an upstairs venue. Yeah. So I had to lug an 810 cab, for those of you who do not know what that is, it's a refrigerator of a speaker. Yep. And I had to like chunk, 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 chunk up the stairs, which you know how to do. Oh, yes. And I, I was, my back was almost broken, and I went outside, and I called my wife, and it's raining at this point. And she, I'm like, what are you doing, babe? And she says, oh, I'm just drinking champagne and eating strawberries. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, what am I doing? And then I worked at Warner Brothers. Okay. Now, now the bigger question do you have any regret leaving? Uh, what an interesting question. No, none, none whatsoever, because the time was a time. You're lucky, because I, I regret not pursuing stand-up harder. Why? Uh, I, you know, there are times I, I think I could have made it. I, 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 I believe I could have. And, I, and, I, and the music path for me opened wide open, like, each step went to the next step, to the next level, to the next level. So it was like my music career was just paved in gold in front of me. And and I chose that. And there are times I, I, I wish I had pursued it. But get back up on the stage. What's holding you back? Uh, laziness now. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Whose fault is that? Just, well, I got to blame somebody. I'll find somebody. <laughs> blame. It's not my fault. <laughs> I'm a music executive. It's somebody else's fault. Uh, of course, that's exactly right. I think that's, you've, you've learned, obviously, from the greats. So final question for you. Now, you were mentioning that the shows, the events, like when you, when you go to a show, it's a communal experience. It's uplifting. What is the best? Let's say this. What was the show that connected you the best to the music, the people, whatever moved you the most? I say the greatest show... There's two ways to answer that. There's the greatest show I've ever seen that if I never saw another show again, I'd be fine. And that was Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and Bon Jovi at the Count Basie Theater. Wow. Okay. Um, magical moment for me just for all those bands together and having Bruce Springsteen grab me by the arm to write a set list 
considering I spell like a third grader and write like a one-year-old having an epileptic seizure, I was terrified. <laughs> of but course. I wrote it. Uh, I'd have to say my, my, my best musical moment of, yeah, this is, this is the right path, yeah. was seeing Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes at the Westchester Premier Theater. Really? Yeah, it was one of those moments where you just, I don't want to do anything else. That was it. Nothing. This is it. And uh, I was probably 14 or 15, and I was lucky that I knew what I wanted to do from a very young age. So, sure. I, I am blessed in that regard. And, and I look at it, you know, I'm, I'm 56 now, and I've been doing this since I was 18. I, I am the luckiest guy in the world that I still get to do this, that, I, that I'm still allowed here to, to be doing this is mind-blowing. Well, let's be honest. They're kind of lucky to have you, right? I, I, I'd like to think so, but you know, it's uh, you still got to deliver, and 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 it still brings me joy. I mean, walking into an arena and seeing gear and trucks and lighting trusses and all that, I'm like, this is the greatest, man. Truly, the greatest. It's like you're Carney. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I mean, I miss being on tour, but. Now I'm a little too old and broken. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, there's only so many 7-Elevens I could hit in four days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there, you know, it's funny. I, I, God, what is it? it had to be October. So I fill in as tour manager for the band Garbage when their regular tour manager is busy. So every once in a while, I'll, I'll take a long weekend and I'll tour manage them. And it gives me just enough taste of the power of touring and they're such a great band, and they're so kind and so much fun. And then I can be home by Sunday, and, and I'm fine. You're in your house. So. <laughs> well, listen, man, uh, so, so here's, here's the last kind of uh, shtick that I do. Um, okay. Because, like I said, this is like a shticky radio station kind of thing. But it is going to be real simple. We are going to pretend to say goodbye. Yeah. Then we are going to uh, – I'm going to hang up, quote, unquote, and then we're going to, like, chat afterwards. Deal? Done. Going to cost. Oh, and before I forget, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest thing about this entire interview is that I got to. Sometimes it's kind of hard in the process to get people. Nick decides to like text me like a week ago and says, "I want to do your podcast." I am driving, and I wrote "done." Yeah. <laughs> so I can talk for hours. I, you know, thank you so I'm, much for doing this. Um, okay, pleasure. so we're going to say goodbye. Is a little bit of acting involved? You can you can jazz us up if you want. Hey, Nick, what a fantastic conversation we've had. I, I, I truly, actually, I, I do mean this. It was amazing talking to you. You're a great friend. Happy to do it. And then your turn. Happy to do it. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Hang on. And.